You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 95. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, on this last episode of 2018, we talk about a recent paper that dealt with using a tablet to record ceramics and how it compared to, well, not using a tablet. Let's get to it. All right, Paul, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? It's going great today. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, we're recording one of those weird dimensional things that have to do with podcasts where uh, we're recording before Christmas, but this is coming out after Christmas, uh, which is a pretty big event in a lot of people's lives. Obviously, not everyone celebrates Christmas, but a good portion of the listening audience probably does. And it's just a weird kind of thing because we're recording this and when we release it, I'll be in North Carolina. We're recording it. I'm not in North Carolina. It's just all strange. So anyway, how's it going over there? That's good. Good. You have big uh, plans coming up? Uh, eight days in North Carolina. So yeah, like I said, oh, and we're signing on a house in the meantime in between there. So lots of things going on. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. All right. Well, we've got a bunch of people on the call right now, uh, five to be exact, and they are all authors uh, and or participated in a paper that we read um, that was released in the Society for American Archaeological Journal, um, advances in archaeological practice. And we will link to that in the show notes. But the article was called Mobilization as Mediation, Implementing a Tablet-Based Recording System for Ceramic Classification. And we're going to talk to, it looks like just about everybody that was on that paper uh, right now. But first, we're going to have them introduce themselves. So Parker, go ahead. Hi, thanks so much for having us on here. I'm Parker Van Valkenburg. I'm um, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Brown University. And uh, my role in this was as the project director of the Proyecto Arqueológico Saña Colonial, a project that we've been running since uh, 2009 in uh, coastal Peru. And I'm the first author on the, on the publication. Okay. And from here on out, I will have you pronounce that, not me, because it would be useless. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and next, Kiara. Hi, so I'm Kiara. I'm one of the uh, four students who works on this project along with Parker. Uh, my main role in this project was I helped with the experimental design, and I came with a little bit of uh, archaeology background in Italy, where I had worked at an archaeological site for a few years. So it was really, really cool to get the shift to you know Peruvian archaeology. Nice, nice, Brian. I'm Brian Balson Stanton. I'm the Solutions Architect for Digital Humanities in the Faculty of Arts at Macquarie University. I'm also the Technical Director of the FAMES Project, and I helped both with the documentation supplied to these folks to build their module and for some troubleshooting as well. Awesome. And Jackson? Hi. Uh, I was a computer science student at Brown, and my role was in the implementation of the module. Okay. And Louisa. Hi, um, like Kiara and Jackson, I was a student at Brown at the time, um, and I was the head student archaeologist on the team and also helped with the visual design of the application. Awesome. Sounds good. So we're going to jump right into this. Parker, why don't you give us an overview on this project as it really as it pertains to the paper and what we're talking about here? Yeah, great. Thank you. So uh, the the broader context in which we did this work was we were wrapping up lab work on a project that had been going on for three or four years. And we're facing the daunting task of having to analyze 50 or 60,000 uh, sherds and uh, get them into a spreadsheet of some sort to, to analyze them. 
And we had a really great experience working with uh, a FAMES module in the field that uh, we used for recording field data. What we found implementing that module is that it really greatly improved the richness and the integrity of our data, eliminating a lot of the errors from that we'd suffered in previous years using a paper-based system. And uh, as a result, I really think that the conclusions we were able to reach were much more robust um, mm -hmm. than the work that we had previously done using our, our former recording-based system. So we were excited also by the fact that FAMES allows users to do relatively light lifting in the development of XML-based modules uh, to create your own uh, classification systems. Mm -hmm. I myself am not, uh, I, I don't code, but uh, there were grants available at Brown University to involve students in research. And I thought it would be really exciting to bring someone like Jackson and someone like Kiara on board who had some coding experience to help us develop this module, discuss best practices on, here on campus, and then take it down to Peru and actually implement it. And in the process, try to formally observe how it affected the way that we did, we did research. So the, the paper is the result of that. And it's kind of, it, it's a funky paper in the sense that uh, on the one hand, um, we were, we're trying to use quantitative data to evaluate the module's performance. But I also wanted to, to take the opportunity to really reflect on what it is that mobile technologies do to the way that we work. And in turn, how that effective transformation, as we call it in the paper, uh, mm -hmm. ultimately changes the, the quality of the data that emerges. So there's a bit of a kind of science and technology studies, STS element to the paper. And then there's also kind of a more conventional um, uh, performance analysis. Uh, so it's multimodal. And going back and reading it, I'm, I'm still happy with it. But I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say as well, what your reactions were. Sure. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that more than likely in the in the second segment because I was very, I was very interested by that too. I work in the the digital archaeology and really software selling sector for this, and uh, I'm very interested in in those aspects of the paper as well. You know what 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 the reactions of people and how they were working together. Before we get to that though, what uh, a few more questions for you, Parker? What made you want to try out? tablet recording or fames or, you know, did you, did you, were you seeking out some kind of tablet recording system or just some kind of digital recording system? How, how did that come about? It's, it's largely based on the observation uh, from our first field season on this project mm -hmm. uh, when we were doing extensive excavations, working with a team um, in which not everybody shared the same native language, going home, taking a look at the data and realizing that in some cases it just wasn't as good as I hoped that it would be. And I'd read a little bit you know, in a, in a few places, uh, John Walrott's blog, Paperless Archaeology. Um, mm -hmm. So this is back, this is back in around uh, 2013 when we first started thinking about this. A colleague mentioned Fames, and I, I read up, and it sounded like a great fit. So I, I, I reached out to uh, Sean Ross and Adela and, and Brian, uh, specifically thinking that using a Fames-based system in the field would would enable us to really just improve the quality of, of our data. And okay. as, as time went on, we realized that, that there were other advantages to using a, a tablet-based system, uh, but it was, really, it was really that kind of mechanical goal that we started with. So let's talk about FAMES a little bit. Brian, uh, you work with FAMES. Why don't you tell us, tell, tell everybody what the, what the platform FAMES works on, like in the field, the realistic platform that works on in the field, and, uh, you know, 
why you guys designed this and how it worked. Those are three <laughs> questions I'll remind you in the end. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is a big set of three questions. Um, yes, and sir. we have plenty of papers <laughs> on that set of three questions. Uh, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Fames is a field recording app for Android. And mm -hmm. it came about because Sean and Adela tried to make bespoke software for their, their Bulgaria field recording in 2010 or so. And it turns mm -hmm. out that making software is really tedious and really expensive and <laughs> for some odd reason, right? And so what, what our intention has been is to, to create a common platform for, for field recording. The way we've discovered how to sell it is as an electronic field notebook because it, it's a way of collecting data according to whatever methodology the researchers have while in the field on multiple devices with GIS built in while offline for eventual synchronization. And mm -hmm. it turns out that adding all of those adjectives into the same software makes it fairly complex. Okay. Now, what about the uh, the customization you can do with Fames? I, I'm actually a little curious because this part was... I wouldn't say confusing, but if you didn't have a fundamental knowledge of how Fames works and things like that, how the article, uh, Parker, maybe you can speak to this, and Brian, how you guys integrated what became known as PAZ-C, or I'm not sure how you pronounce that, P-A-Z-C. First, tell us what that is. Uh, maybe, Brian, you can start with that. And then how, you know, what what, what is that? How did that implement and enhance what Fames did? So... I need to, to use some jargon here, and I apologize. There's the idea of a module. And so when, when we were doing our initial stock take in, in 2012, we asked 80 archaeologists to come into the same room and agree on something. Turns out this was unwise. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what I was handed this set of conflicting requirements, and what I realized was we need a generalized solution to create arbitrary workflows. And so in order to do that, there's the idea of a module, which is the specific research workflow for a given researcher that can be implemented with far less complexity than the entire platform. And the way to think about the Fames app in itself is it's a web browser. It, okay. it renders pages, but it doesn't actually do any data collection for specific researchers. And, and what that meant for us is, is that we could effectively take the idiosyncrasies of our, our recording system, the things that matter to us, the, the things that we want to label, so attributes that uh, were already in our paper-based database, and then translate those relatively, relatively simply into the um, uh, digital format or platform that Fames provided. Mm-hmm. The system that uh, Brian and Sean and Adela and their colleagues built allows people to, to add attribute fields and, and specific values really relatively easily, uh, including when one is in the field itself. All right. Well, I, I'm planning on having a, an entire episode on Fames because, uh, you know, with Brian and and the other, uh, you know, the other founders that you guys are mentioning of Fames, because Fames was on episode seven of the Archaeotech podcast, which I had 100% forgot about until I heard Brian's voice. And, and that was a few years ago. And Fames is, of course, like software does, 
evolved and 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 presumably gotten much better and more stable as software does. And so we're going to talk about that. So so Jackson, you worked on some of the coding for the uh, for the Fame software. Um, what kind of challenges did you encounter uh, while coding that software? The biggest challenge I faced was a, using a relatively obscure coding language for the uh, nuts and bolts aspect of the module, which was Bean Shell, which is JavaScript-esque, but not JavaScript. And for that, I had to uh, get Brian's help sometimes. But it really went pretty smoothly. The Fames app provides a sophisticated workbench, so to speak, and toolkit for developing these specific uh, bespoke journals. Or what was what was the word you guys used earlier? Uh, archaeological notebooks, uh, yeah. And notebooks yeah. in Fames. Yeah. yeah. So were you doing this work back in the States? Were you doing the, the work in the field? Did you go along with them uh, to help develop it while it was doing it? Was this all done pre-planned and then taken out as a finished package into the field? How, how did this work? Uh, started, it in, started it back in the United States and then finished it in Lima. Great. Wow. So you were alongside the, uh, the rest of the project in the field uh, developing, I guess, as they were asking uh, for new features or new fields? Yep. And that worked well? Yeah, that was great. They would provide feedback, you know, because we could uh, develop as much as we wanted in the United States, but that doesn't really mean anything until people have tested it and told you what works well and what doesn't. And uh, mm -hmm. it was nice to be able to respond and make changes in real time. Well, the responding okay. and making changes, I guess that's a question. I don't know who wants to cover this, Kiara or Luisa, but... Um, because I've got down here, both of you were involved in implementation and designing. I guess that you were the uh, the major interfaces between uh, who's using it and who's developing on the back end. Is that correct? Yeah, we both had a hand in that. Absolutely. Nice. And what was that process like? So, well, one of the things I just wanted to add on to uh, what Jackson was saying is that it was really striking how... Uh, how useful it was to be able to make changes to the program when we were in the field. So there were all sorts of issues that we didn't anticipate that arose when we started working with the rest of the team in Lima. And it was fantastic to be able to go in, make a quick change, and then have it ready to use again the next day. That's nice that it's flexible that way anyway. Exactly, exactly. So yeah. one thing is we really wanted to make it accessible in terms of language. So we had it available in both English and Spanish, and there were a lot of tweaks in that sense. We had a lot of tweaks on um, how we uploaded the data, how we saved all the data at the end of the day, because it's you know massive amounts of data with you know about 12 people working on it every day. So that was mm -hmm. another big aspect of it for us. And maybe this is a follow-up question for Parker, but if uh, if the data collection is being changed on the fly in the field, was that uh, did that add extra challenges for you trying to uh, to make sense of it, or uh, did you just run with it? <laughs> One of the advantages that we had is we had previously we we'd used more or less the same classification system in previous years, mm -hmm. so the the number of times when we needed to fundamentally modify attribute values or, or, or add new ones was relatively uh, rare, but there were some basic performance issues that we had to work through at the very beginning. And the nice thing is that we were working in a lab context where, you know, rather than being out in the barren desert with sand blown in your face and, you know, rotting carcasses of <laughs> large mammals right next to you, uh, we were in Lima in an apartment 
and we were able to you know, pause and say, okay, guys, let's, let's tweak a couple of things and come back to the ceramics in two days. And in the meantime, let's, let's work on something else. Mm-hmm. So it didn't, it, in a laboratory based context, it, it, it proved to be not nearly as much of a challenge as it would have been had we been doing, doing this out in, um, in the field. Uh, I'm wondering in just the last minute or so here, um, you guys mentioned how, and I think this can be answered pretty quickly and possibly by Parker, but yeah, uh, something I got out of the article was you mentioned that using and learning code books for data entry um, is obviously cumbersome. And codes, in in my experience, because we use codes on uh, Nevada IMAX forms and the whole IMAX system for recording archaeological sites out here in the West, they used to use codes because those two-digit or two-letter codes would go into this coding form, which went into the old computer system that was developed in the 80s. And it was just easier, first off, to mm-hmm. enter a two-letter thing than, say, you know, Elko eared projectile point. And, <laughs> uh, and, and, and also, you know, the computer had a limited amount of space. So it would, it would take up less space to enter the codes. Now, people are still using codes universally in archaeology. Now, when you guys created this whole system, did you just did you add the codes to the um, to the system and people were still using codes, but they had maybe an explanation for them? Or are you finding that codes are, are no longer necessary for this whole process? That's really fascinating. I mean, the, 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 the kind of archaeology of the, the code system that we use now. <laughs> right? And I'd never really I never really considered that. I'd always assumed that it was something to do with wanting to fit things onto spreadsheets that you could see on the same page without having to expand them out which is also an advantage, I guess. Maybe that helps to explain why they've been maintained. No, so, so what we did, and, and there's actually a, a, a couple of images of this in the article itself, is we uh, tried to incorporate the names of the codes into these uh, scroll, scroll button menus that also include images of the same attributes that are being described by the codes. And of course, you know, what we found was that some people knew the codes better than others and other people applied the codes to things that they didn't seem to correspond to. And our intuition was, well, how, if you put a, if you put an image in, into the, uh, the, the data entry system, then you can reduce some of the ambiguity associated with the code. Um, mm-hmm. and what we found is that that was, that was definitely the case with certain attributes, but it wasn't the case with others. And, uh, that in turn led us to some interesting conclusions. I think about the database that we were using in the first place. The problem oftentimes uh, when we weren't able to reduce um, inner observer error wasn't that FAMES wasn't doing its job. It's that the database included some fundamental ambiguities and the switch between one medium of data entry and another really helped to highlight that. Okay. That's interesting. All right. Well, that's it for segment one. Um, I think we're probably going to do three segments on this because we just have so much to talk about. So um, if you guys have the time, I know we said two segments, but we'll talk about that later. We'll see what we get done next time. In the meantime, uh, take a listen to this ad for one of our sponsors and we'll be back in just a second. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists. Have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. Now back to the show.
All right, welcome back to episode 95 of the Archaeotech podcast. And we are talking about an article regarding uh, essentially using tablets uh, to record ceramics down in Peru. And we've got the authors of the paper online here. Um, I want to ask Parker, uh, there's another quote I pulled out of the article here that says, tablet users engaged in fewer critical discussions of artifact attributes during the data entry process, which I thought was really interesting because we, we focus a lot on digital archaeology about talking about, oh, what software are you using? What are the, uh, you know, what are the intricacies of it? We, we spent the first segment talking a lot about fames, you know, and, and coding and oh, how do the codes work and all these things. But we don't often talk about the actual practice of how does this change how we interact with each other and with the actual recording process? How does this affect everything? Um, I'm very interested in this because I use a lot of tablets when I when I do my CRM archaeology, but a lot of times we're out in the field and still interacting with each other, but in a lab environment, it seems very different. So can you speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I, I think that in that sense, the uh, implementation of tablets or digital technologies in the field isn't particularly different than say, excavation. Mary Layton, uh, a colleague uh, who works at the intersections of archaeology and science and technology studies, has written a couple of papers suggesting that excavation techniques have effectively been black boxed, uh, which is Bruno Latour's term for removed from scientific discussion. There are things that we do that we don't, we don't talk about because nobody wants to know how the sausage is made. And um, Sometimes, and quite literally, they're things we don't want to, they're, they're ugly things we don't want to talk about, about, about how, how we do archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think what, what we tried to do in the paper and what we tried to do during the implementation was actually keep our senses attuned to what was actually happening as we use this new system. And I think that in the same way that, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about the legacies of certain forms of data collection and the way that they're embedded in, in media that we no longer use that require us to do this kind of media archaeology. Similarly, there are tendencies that we inherit from our use of these technologies in other contexts. Most of the people on the project, myself included, have tablets, certain habits that we engage in uh, when we use them, and one of which is to, to kind of zone out. And uh, we found that people in the lab when they were using the tablet-based system alone, which was the goal, we were hoping to be able to multiply the number of working groups at any one time. So people started working, it's repetitive work. They plugged in uh, earphones into the tablets and started listening to music and and didn't engage in the same types of discussion that they had to when they were uh, working in teams using our, our paper-based system. So it's, it's sort of like the impedances or the, uh, the, the friction or, or, drag that's introduced into the data entry system by by paper by this cumbersome system requires you to, to talk critically about your attributes um, and that in some cases led to the positive result of maybe having more critically assigned values you know in the, in the write-up process brian stumped me at one point and said you know why the hell didn't you actually just have people working in, in pairs mm-hmm. uh, uh, using the tablets and i think that that uh, that's one of the practical suggestions that emerged from the paper uh, that Critical discussion of, at, of, of attributions is, is a really valuable thing. And if your tablet-based system like ours led to fewer critical discussions, then maybe you want to reconfigure how labor is organized and encourage people to talk to each other. So was the initial assumption when you use tablets that, okay, now we have this device and it's kind of small and it's right in front of me. Therefore, you know, dot, 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 one person 
right? That that yeah. that was kind of the initial. That's interesting. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think we we assumed that the visual components of the tablet-based entry system would lead to fewer errors and mm-hmm. that it would obviate the need for these kind of critical discussions. And people could just punch at the screen, point to similarities in the artifacts that they were labeling and the images on the screen and, and, and not need to talk about them. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, we realized that was, that was a, uh, an improper assumption. Okay. I actually have a follow-up question to that. You know, this article you talk about uh, trying to assess and uh, and uh, designing a test to assess uh, the speed, the accuracy uh, of data entry with uh, with this system versus your old system. Um, do you intend to do anything like that going forward? Do you, do we, uh, you know, have people enter tablets or enter the data on tablets in Teams versus uh, alone, so you can compare to see if Brian's supposition is right? Yeah, that would be great. Th- that uh, set of materials is now locked up in a dungeon somewhere uh, uh, that will require us to go through a cumbersome process of permitting <laughs> to get access to it again. So it's not like we've got it in our backyard. Uh, that particular data set, we could uh, we could certainly go back to it, but I'm more interested in potentially doing something like that on uh, the next project that I've started and uh, doing sort of a, a, a more standard kind of rigorous product test. Mm -hmm. The the thing about this is actually something that we ran into during the review process. Um, The the test that we did and the test we presented, there isn't kind of a a strict product performance test. It was something that one of many different techniques we tried to employ to to just keep track of how this new system was affecting the way that we worked. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that sense, it was documentary rather than, than experimental. Okay. Louisa, we're going to go to you next because we haven't heard from you yet in this podcast, and I'm interested in uh, your thoughts. Please uh, remind us what your role was in this project. Sure. So I was the head student archaeologist, and I was helping um, the fourth undergraduate student who was working with us, Jake, with the visual design of the application. So while we worked with Jackson and Kiata very closely to try and figure out um, how best to represent these documentation categories in ways that were easy to access because one of, as you can read in the article, one of the main criticisms um, both we and previous researchers which had used the code book had was that it was cumbersome and difficult to navigate. So our Mm -hmm. idea, one of the biggest goals I think of this project was to make it much more accessible and a more efficient data entry system. Um, And in order to do that, we added the scroll down menus and um, Jake and I really worked on um, getting accessible and easy to see illustrations that would visualize things such as, I don't know, ceramic type and surface decoration and surface damage and things like that. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if in your discussions of that, because you you said something that sounded very similar to something I've been thinking about. And in you, when you do research into other systems, you find that archaeology is a little bit behind in this respect. Is I, I've been thinking something for like ceramic cataloging. Now, I'm not sure how much actual analysis you guys were doing, but if it was just cataloging, then it almost seems like a pure visual-based system uh, would be something that this would kind of evolve into, where it really is just, honestly, it's just pictures. It's just like, is it this? Okay, there's a decision tree. No, it's not. It's this, it's this, it's this. And you just keep moving down the line. And we looked at stuff like that for projectile points and other things as well. Is that something you guys ever discussed where you were out there as how this system could evolve in you know years into the future? 
Yeah, I think one of the, well, we had discussions of the, both the past and the future of ceramic classifications many times. Um, <laughs> and I think one of the things that came out of the project that we realized was that the illustrations helped in some respects. So I think we mentioned that for firing, for example, that had been a category that had confused many people. It was one of the ones with the most inconsistencies and adding the images did help decrease those inconsistencies, but adding images to a lot of other forms, other attribute categories, I mean, didn't really help that much. So then it became a question of whether that was an issue of ceramic classification itself, or if it was an issue of the illustrations we were using, or if people just weren't really familiar with the forms themselves. So I think, mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting question. Is ceramic classification itself or the way we conduct it inherently problematic? A uh, quick question related to the classification uh, for people who haven't read the article. Were you fitting the ceramics into a pre-existing typology or um, uh, for anybody who was working on the project, were you working on a, a pre-existing ty typology or, um, or were you developing one here? Well, this is a pre-existing typology that I think like many type typologies has its own particular history. Uh, ours builds on uh, classification systems that were developed by scholars working in adjacent valleys on the coast of Peru. Mm -hmm. And then also, because we're dealing with colonial material, we also drew on the uh, work of people like Kathleen Deegan and uh, historical archaeologists working in the Circ Circum-Caribbean region. So uh, it's a bit of a chimera. And then, of course, there's all the stuff that we found that, that we couldn't find equivalents for in, in uh, previous publications. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, Louisa, when we were talking about the uh, the visual system, it seems like it's a, a dual problem of, you know, training and the visual system for classification, because people often try to think it's one or the other, like, well, I'm, I'm either going to be well-trained in ceramics and I can just describe this stuff because I can understand all of it or visual system. But I think a combined system is really what we need, because in my experience, relying on a visual system for anything people tend to want to drop stuff into these visual boxes really easily without really understanding what they mean. It's like, well, it kind of looks like that. So I'm going to drop it over here. <laughs> right. Definitely. Is that kind of what you guys were saying? Yeah. 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 And I yeah. think um, one of the things that happened with the tablets as well is as Parker and others were saying before, we had much less discussion. So people were talking mm -hmm. about the forms much less. And I think that when we were using the spreadsheet and code book, we could discuss them more. So and we could add different forms if we thought something didn't fit into a previous typology. So I think that's one of the things that came out of this, that um, discussion is really helpful too. So it's not just looking at a picture and trying to match it to that. It's rather trying to work through this single shirt and talking to others and trying to figure out what it is. Parker, do you think that the, the experience you had doing this, um, well, first off, we know the the delay in, in paper publication cycles, so I'm not sure how many times you've actually done this since then. <laughs> but you know, how many uh, ha, have you actually done this uh, in in another field session since you guys wrote the paper? No, we haven't. Um, okay. Yeah the, the 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 new the new main field project that I'm working on is is in a totally different region, mm -hmm. so we'll need to start from scratch. But I think what's what's exciting is that uh, we can more or less use the same we won't be able to use the same module. We'll, we'll need to create new attribute values, but we can use really similar forms. And the, the tech that we bought to run the FAME system needs to be updated. But mm -hmm. now that we know how to use it, the, uh, the learning curve is 
uh, much less steep, even for applying it in a, in a new project. Uh, and I, I fully intend to, to, to use a system like this the next time we have to analyze tens of thousands of ceramics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm wondering why why are the attributes going to change so much? Are you still analyzing ceramics on this new project? Yeah, we are, but working in a different region. So the uh, forms of vessels are, are quite different, mm-hmm. and the uh, specific categories of decoration are different. So uh, the, the attributes themselves aren't changing, but the, the, va- the field values certainly will. Gotcha. Okay. So you might not have to start totally from scratch, right? No, no, no. We should just be able... I mean, the, the great thing is that the Fame server, which you can just act to access by connecting from a laptop, uh, allows you to continually add and, and, and edit uh, attribute values okay. uh, in the field. And so, you know, we could really rename the module and, and then implement it like that. Okay. So... Um... I kind of an implementation detail here about how you worked with it. In most of the projects I've been on, there is, you know, a dedicated one or two ceramicists that uh, that are working, analyzing the pottery. Other people might do some initial culling, trying to find, um, you know, cleaning and uh, trying to find diagnostics. Uh, how much training with the ceramics was necessary to bring people up to speed with this? And do you think that uh, having this tablet-based system, uh, maybe I'm predetermining the answer here with the question, but do you think that having this uh, tablet-based system meant that you could have less ceramic-specific training amongst the uh, the field staff? That's a great question. We we don't have, I mean, we, there are people who, who, speci- who specialize in analyzing the aggregated ceramic data, but unlike large projects that I, th- I think of in, in the Mediterranean and to a certain extent domestically in the U S where you've got tons and tons of students and relatively highly trained people in uh, Peru, the average project is smaller and uh, the labor is less specialized. So it's, it's quite uncommon to find a ton of PhDs working on the same project. In this case there, we had a great team of Peruvian archaeologists and archaeology students, some of whom I'd worked with before and some of whom had, had learned the system. And they were really the people who provided kind of lateral training for new members of the project, both Peruvian and, and foreign. So we, we spent a few days before the, they, they got to going to, to try to train people. But we did, there was just sort of no formalized training program, you know, where you're, you're run through a series of trials in order to make sure that you know exactly how to do things. I think that that's certainly not a bad idea if you're dealing with a really large team. In this case, there have been a number of people, including my colleague Rebecca Bria, who works in a different part of Peru, who've been able to effectively use tablet-based systems on field schools in order to uh, streamline the learning process. And I think there's some great potentials there. In our experience, though, I don't, you know, thinking back to some of the things we've already talked about, I, I wouldn't say that the tablet-based system enabled training to, to, to happen, uh, more efficiently. And at least the, the fact that we didn't see substantially improved results in the consistency of data in a number of different fields suggests to me that, that it using that system or using the training system that, that, that we, we implemented didn't improve uh, accuracy. Hmm. And I think there's a risk again, Thinking that you know, if you throw a digital tool at a product at a at a problem that um, it can solve, because people seem more engaged as they do the work, that they actually are going to produce better data. Hmm. Okay, Brian. 
So some a, a note on tools. The technology is an amplifier for design. And what what is a a training-based workflow or a high accuracy or high efficiency-based workflow is very different, as I think that that Parker and I discovered. And and one thing that 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 modules take beforehand is an unusually large amount of testing relative to a paper-based workflow where it can be worked out in the field and that's something that most people aren't expecting and and so just just to temper expectations the quality of this research because it is research just like any other is entirely proportionate to the amount of prep and and there aren't many shortcuts that that we're used to from other magic technologies. <laughs> nice. Well, we're we're going to take our final break right now, and I, I'm going to say one thing leading out of this break is, uh, and I'm a paper hater, so you know, and people listening to this show know that. I'm going to disagree with you on one thing is that paper is more easy to, I guess, adjust in the field. I have been on projects where forms were either invented or redesigned for a project, usually like excavation projects. And one thing was wrong on the form that they had a thousand copies printed of before we went out into the field because we were going into nowhere where we could have more copies printed. And we had to manually change this thing. And it was pretty fundamental to the to the organization of the project. Some people remembered to do it. Some people did not. And it became a huge nightmare in the end. And if we were able to on the fly change the system and the way it records and the way it displays in a digital format, then I feel like on that particular project anyway, we could have avoided a lot of problems. So I'm always for the digital solution if we can fix it. Anyway, well, we'll talk about that some more on the other side of this break when we come back for the last segment of episode 95 of the Architect Podcast. Be right back. This network is listener supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.arcpodnet.com slash members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So check out our memberships at www.arcpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.arcpodnet.com slash members. Now back to the show. All right. Welcome back to the third segment, uh, the rare third segment of the Architect podcast, episode 95. Um, we're going to forego the app of the day segment because we've just got so much to talk about with this. And uh, it's rare that we get this many people on. So I want to maximize that time. Okay. So we're going to run around the room here real quick and ask each one of you, uh, what is your what is your biggest takeaway that's positive about this experience, um, you know, from using the application or just the process itself or something like that? And then what is something that you noticed the biggest thing you would approve upon in this entire process uh, from training to the software, to the hardware, to whatever the case may be. And we're going to go down my list in no particular order. Uh, and we'll start with Jackson. Jackson, what are your, uh, what are your two big takeaways from this? The positive takeaway is that, I just chose to start with a positive takeaway. I didn't have one in mind specifically. <laughs> there we go. That's the planning with the new tools. <laughs> um, the positive takeaway is that with very little 
I had never used XML or I'd used it only very briefly for an assignment before trying to develop one of these modules. And I had never used Beanshell or JavaScript or anything related to it. Um, and without much prior exposure to the specific coding tools needed to set up one of these modules, Fames allowed me to get running, I guess, get on my feet pretty quickly with actually creating forms that someone could use or at least we could imagine people using. And I, I can't think of anything that I would change that we haven't already discussed or that wasn't apparent as we were in the process of using the technology. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. From your standpoint, I mean, I, I like the fact that it was easy to really get up to speed on and uh, and just dive into. So that's pretty great. Yeah. Not much of a learning yeah. curve. That's what I'd concisely say. That's that. That is important with archaeologists, as we all know. All right. So, um, Louisa, you're next. So what were your big takeaways from this project? Sure. I think what I really enjoyed um, was working with the Peruvian archaeologists and really developing it on site with them. And especially the use of Spanish, both Spanish and English, I think, was really important both for them and for us. And to try and figure out how to word things in both languages and how to best frame things in both languages, I think, showed everyone, or at least it definitely showed me how important it is to really consider who is on the team and how they work and what's important to each one. As far as what I would improve from my um, part of the project, I think the Peruvian archaeologists mentioned that the images were sometimes hard to see. And I think this is not something we had figured out how to do in Fames. And Brian, if you want to speak to this later, um, but they all said that they would have liked to be able to zoom in to the images or make them bigger. Um, so I think figuring out a way to best display the images would have helped and might have helped with um, decreasing in inconsistencies as well. Just to respond to that, the uh, Lake Mungo project actually has a similar pattern. And uh, they, they extensively used the description components where if you uh, push and hold, it brings up what amounts to a manual page for that item. And so that that's one place that could very much be expanded upon it without limit for, for instruction and discussion of what a particular attribute means. Okay. So Kiara, we'll go to you next. Um, what were your big takeaways from the project? Yeah. So Overall, it was just an incredible experience, and I really love and understand the importance of um, combining, you know, archaeology with the growing digital world. Um, I would say overall, my biggest takeaways were the negative side, probably, as we discussed, the fact that since we were all documenting and recording these ceramics individually, it was somewhat isolating, but this will completely be resolved in the future when we or when it uh, reverts to a system of working in pairs. So I think that was mm -hmm. a really important lesson from the project overall that, you know, the social aspect of the analysis is really important. Okay. The other thing that was positive that I really appreciated was that the system really helped us iron out any consistencies. So at the very beginning, a few times, the use of images helped us realize that two people considered, you know, certain firing patterns different or certain designs or, you know, the lip of the pot, how that looked. Uh, they were classifying it in different ways. And it was really 
uh, great to see that, you know, having this unified tool could help us reach um, a more unified, consistent and better result. Okay. Well, that's good. A consistency of results is, uh, I think, every archaeologist's dream in, you know, getting everybody to kind of be on the same page with how they analyze stuff. That's that's the hard part. All right. So, Parker, uh, we'll go to you next. We're skipping Brian, you might notice, because uh, at, his, at his request, and I was going to request it anyway, because we're going to have him and the Fames team on a separate podcast. So we'll we'll go Fames. Uh, we'll go deep on Fames at some point here in the future. Um, but, Parker, my, my question for you is the same. But first, how much did you pay everyone again to say favorable things about all this? Uh, <laughs> <no>? <laughs> I, uh, I redirected money from uh, <laughs> our <laughs> wonderful university. But um, yes. uh I, I hope that they're not they're not feeling forced uh, forced to do this. And it was I mean it was really one of the the most fun projects I've I've ever done from top to bottom with such a great team of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, the big picture thing for me to be a bit more abstract about it is I think that it's really exciting that implementing digital tools is making us talk about aspects of archaeological data recording that we never talked about before, or at least mm-hmm. that I, I never talked about before could just be my graduate training or my undergraduate training or whatnot. <laughs> I really do think that, that when, when done right, tablet-based recording and, and any number of different forms of uh, digital data capture, aggregation, and analysis uh, invite us to, to think about how we do what we do and uh, to reconsider some of the uh, dark, not dark assumptions, but... Um, unacknowledged assumptions that are built that are built into our training built into the the habits that we have as archaeologists and um our our, our paper the, the part of the paper that that i think i'm most proud of is is the aspect that does that and uh it's sort of the the, the general way that i try to approach digital archaeology in in um in multiple domains not just using digital tools in the field but also analyzing satellite imagery and uh doing spatial analysis and, and so on and so forth. Well, I'm, I'm glad you guys had a positive experience doing this because I, I talked to a lot of people about digital archaeology and you, you first have the conversation of, you know, digital or not digital with somebody, especially in cultural resource management. It's either you're going to pry my notebook from my cold, dead hands or, you know, give you that tablet. There's really no in between. And and I'm glad you guys are, are favorable towards this and the learning curve because, um, you know, I, I can give you my answer to this, but I think everybody probably knows my answer to this. But Parker, do you think that, I mean, first off, it seems like digital archaeology and recording on tablets or some sort of interface like that is inevitable in archaeology. And just figuring out the right way to do it and the right way to interface it is really our jobs right now. Do you think you guys are on the way there? Um, do you think you're on the way to, to developing a good system that works for you as you move into more and more projects? Or do you see bigger, I guess, fundamental changes in how we're doing digital archaeology coming down the line before we really decide on something? Great question. I think that uh, I figured out a system that works for me, and or at least has worked for me in the context of two different projects, but that's the system hasn't, and the goal has never been to, to sort of rid ourselves of the, uh, the scourge of paper uh, <laughs> and, and go fully digital. That may, be, that may work for some people, but what, what we found is that there's certain aspects, for example, drawing. On this project in the field, we found that uh, the, 
there was just so much skill that team members had developed in uh, learning how to accurately draw archaeological contexts. I suck at drawing, but uh, these incredibly talented Peruvian colleagues uh, didn't want to give up the uh, graph paper that they had learned how to, uh, to, to really make art on. And uh, we can't use paper in the place where I'm, I'm working now, Chachapoyas, because it rains all the time. And that forces us to have to think differently about how we're capturing our data. We've done more uh, digital data recording in the field, uh, but I'm a firm believer that there are just certain things that, that drawing forces you to do that you can't reproduce uh, with photogrammetry. The fact that certain forms of digital data re recording allow you to, to think that you can postpone interpretation in the field is, is somewhat dangerous. And so um, I think that rather than treating the digital transition as, as something that's inevitable, we should imagine it as something that's contextual and that a certain amount of digital is good for some people and different forms of digital are good for, for others. We need to build in systems of uh, performance evaluation into our own projects to see uh, what seems to be working and what doesn't, rather than deciding uh, ahead of time that we're going to do this way or the highway and, and being inflexible about changing it. Nice, nice. What what are some of the uh, and anybody can chime in on this really. What are some of the more out of box thinking th types of things you guys were thinking of that even if it's fantastical way in the future? I mean, right when you were saying drawing and and you know photogrammetry and infield analysis, I I was thinking, man, if I had a really good photogrammetry uh, photogrammetric sequence and I had a three D representation, if I could just put on like Oculus Rift or something like that, where I could then see it three dimensional, then could I draw it on paper using all these things? I was like, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys must have had discussions while you were out there about you know using this sort of technology. I mean. Let's let's think outside of the box. Where where would you guys go if money and and research grants were no object? Yeah, it's a great. Uh, the, the, the question of, of VR it sort of takes us in different directions, and uh, I haven't worked as extensively trying to get the R models into Unity um, and build, mm -hmm. building sort of three dimensional environments. A, a couple of colleagues like Steve Wernke at Vanderbilt University have have, have done really great things with this. Uh, being there, being able to go back there, particularly when you do it in a big room. I was in this conference where Steve showed uh, it was about 20 historians, a model of a colonial church and colonial town that he and some students had built. And uh, he had one of his graduate students with an Oculus Rift on. Um, and then his screen, what he could see was, was projected back up onto the, uh, the screen in this, this auditorium. And as we moved around the site, these people, these historians who had never been to a site like that before, started noticing all of these really incredible things. Oh, that's where the priest sleeps. That reminds me a lot of this text that I read here and there. So as, a, as an interpretive tool, that's really exciting. But to be honest, I, I don't think that the folks, including Steve, who are doing that would, would suggest that they can, they can truly supplant... Uh, the types of in-field, uh, multi-century experiences you can have. I mean, yeah, you can go, you can touch the texture of something in a profile uh, to tell it. You can you can spray it with water um, and see the way that the water evaporates over time. Uh, you can smell the. Uh, I worked on a colonial site 
uh, on the coast of Peru, Magdalena de Cao, where everything was so well preserved that the middens still stank and there was you know, tallow <laughs> candles we dug out and a piece of a, a prayer book that somebody had later used as toilet paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, indigenous <laughs> resistance to colonialism is what we call it. Uh, th- those sorts of multi-sensory encounters aren't things that you can capture with a camera. So mm-hmm. I don't think that, you know, in terms of out-of-the-box thinking, I'd love to have a system in which we have uh, constant photo capture of the, the context that we're digging so that we can uh, not just recreate in static sequences the context that we dig, but actually go back and monitor practices and patterns and digitally re- re-excavate the, the context. But mm-hmm. I, I think that there's probably thinking thinking beyond the visual is maybe the, the great frontier that I, that I hope we, we get to in my lifetime. I'm thinking about ways to record, not just, uh, not just the visual properties of the sites we dig, but, but other kinds of textures. Nice. Yeah. I think we've, we've definitely talked about some stuff like that before, uh, on this show, recording those different senses, essentially. Mm. Um, uh, I'm wondering, we just have a few minutes to go here. Uh, you mentioned using FAMES and, and, and reprogramming it for this uh, for this new project. Have you looked at, in the meantime, forgetting that Brian is on the call, um, any other software <laughs> <laughs> or anything else that you're evaluating or, or want to evaluate for the new project? Yeah, we the, the, the one thing that we have looked at is for landscape-level data collection, ArcGIS mm-hmm. Collector. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were some aspects of using it that were uh, that were great. The ability to uh, rapidly integrate data that we collected in the field with our existing ArcGIS databases was, was wonderful. But uh, one of the really great limitations of using systems like that that sync remotely is that when you are in a place with no internet connection mm-hmm. uh, and the closest internet connection that's three hours drive away isn't any good, uh, you're kind of uh, up a creek when you can't, uh, it's, it's really difficult to back up your data and it's really difficult to sync. And sometimes you're in the field and you need to have a cellular data connection in order to even be able to log into the damn program. And um, the great thing about the fame system that uh, that we've been using is that we've got a, a local server back in the dig house that we sync to every evening. And, uh, uh, you know, we've been talking mostly about the way we use fans for ceramic recording on this podcast, but we also used it for field recording. And in my new project, we use more or less the same module that we'd used for the last uh, excavation project. We just changed some attributes and uh, relabeled the module and we were good to go using all the same hardware that we had before. So it was really kind of a no brainer. The system would work so well for us that we, we, we've just stuck with it. Paul, do you got any final questions? Uh, no, I mean, this has been all over the place. Um, I do have one kind of uh, comment, very minor, uh, much uh, when you said features you liked um, or where you'd go in the future. I was caught by one thing that's mentioned in the article, that you have an uncertainty slider where the uh, the data enters can can say, you know, how sure they are about something that they've, that they've entered into the field. And I thought that was great. The only place I've seen that before was on the database I made for myself for my dissertation. Um, <laughs> but I would like to add that, that human element into a, a lot of the data collection, you know, where you could try to assess, um, you know, how certain one is about things, how, uh, you know, it's, I, I don't mm-hmm. even have 
a coherent thought about it. It's just that uh, I, I thought that that was such a very cool element that you added. Was that part of Fanes or is that something yes. that you added in your own? So I, I spent quite a lot of time thinking about data collection when I was designing Fames. And uh -huh. that's why I have both annotations and certainty as part of a fundamental data structure. Um, I don't think there's much evidence of many archaeologists using certainty in the field all that much. But that is something that, that many of the technologists I've talked to have really liked, where any single observation can be quantified on a scale from zero to one of how certain you are. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that that's just a, a research tradition where some people are used to scribbling question marks in the margins, other people right. are used to writing in the margins. And, and I wanted to be able to allow for that. I think that's great. Maybe we can discuss that more when we have you back on. I hope you do. This the the issue was clarified for me a little bit during the review process. We had one reviewer who um, seemed to think that um, certainty fields were the scourge of God, and um, <laughs> that you know had a data database design philosophy that didn't allow for uncertainty. But I think that the the prospect of being able to actually map out uncertainty and think about you know, what, are, what are the parts of our database that in, invite more uncertainty. And, and uh, you think about working in the field, are there, are there certain types of contexts also that are harder for people to kind of get a grasp on? And why is that? I think that's interesting. No, I think it's very important. I mean, we're always questioning our own data collection. We're always questioning the data collection and the uh, conclusions of others. So uh, it makes sense that uh, that you could try to bring it in uh, in a systematic way uh, into the systematized uh, data collection. So uh, kudos. Yeah. Well, on that note, um, we will talk to Brian and the rest of the FAMES team, uh, like I said, on a future episode. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I want to thank everybody for coming on. I just want to say, in results, in response to the last uh, conversation, there, uh, yeah, I've never used certainty in the field. I use a lot of uncertainty in the field, and that's really how I operate. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so anyway, thank you everybody for coming on. Uh, thanks for publishing this paper because so many people, um, like I said early on, they just they talk about you know, oh, this was just one aspect of what we did, but they don't actually talk about the process, so we can all learn from it and find out, you know. What, what your guys' experiences are. And I think that is key and fundamental in this um, in this transitional time period that we're in in archaeology. And, and I think with technology changing as fast as it is, we're going to be in this transitional period for a little while while we all figure out exactly what we need and, and what works for what. So thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. And I think with that, we will call it. Thanks a lot, Paul, for joining me. And thanks, everybody else. Yeah, and thank you. For, yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.